Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Denderen shortly and of course our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now as the afterglow of qualification for the Men's World Cup starts to fade, attention returns to the Matildas ahead of the 2023 Women's World Cup on home soil. With the disappointment of the Asian Cup semi-final loss still fresh after the minimum expectation of an appearance in the final from Tony Gustafsson's squad was not met, the Matildas take on Spain and Portugal in hostile territory in the coming week. But in a high-risk strategy, the Australians will be without their almost their entire senior starting squad after Football Australia's sports science, medical and technical teams recommended several senior players take extended breaks to manage ongoing injuries, fatigue and fitness following their club seasons abroad. No one is more across this than the ABC Samantha Lewis, so we'll chat to Sam shortly about what she makes of it all. Soccer is Matilda's Central with Willem. After that, we will dig a little deeper into both national squads and reflect on the flame out of the under-23s team at the AFC Asian Championships after such a promising start. And as reflections on the centenary of the Socceroos come to a conclusion, we'll talk to football historian Trevor Thompson about the book Burning Ambition, which he co-authored, which traces the genesis of the first Australian and New Zealand national teams and recounts the inaugural three tests in New Zealand in June 1922 and the return series in 1923. And we'll also ask another burning question where are we at in the quest to find those ashes which were last seen in 1954 and of course we'll wrap it up with everything else in stoppage time so edge i mentioned the afterglow i bet you that afterglow still hasn't faded for you um you're still um doing your uh, preparations uh, in the middle east mate um how's it all going the inquiry levels must be off the charts Hello, Rob. Uh, hello, listeners to Box to Box right around the world, wherever you're listening from, uh, and especially all our friends in Australia. Yes, Rob, I'm in uh, the Middle East, and um, we've been able to launch our tour programs in the last 24 hours. So it's been a busy time as uh, we connect with all the people that have registered interest in our tours, and things are going really well. No, it's a very exciting time. Uh, the World Cup, um, you know, it's very close, isn't it, really? I mean, the, the, whole, the whole World Cup qualification program being compressed, the impact of COVID on the scheduling, the the strange dates for this World Cup. Normally, uh, we'd be at a World Cup right now, wouldn't we? But uh, we have to wait until November, December. But uh, it's only a little way away now. And um, with all of the teams set for the World Cup, um, there's a lot of people running around Doha getting their arrangements in place. Um, uh, not without its challenges. Uh, a small little city that's going to host 32 teams, players, stakeholders, fans, VIPs, officials, you name it. It's going to be one big party, Rob. Now, Edge, um, uh, we were chatting about this off air, uh, but I, I just heard a little notification. Uh, that alert. is another bookie. <laughs> yes, uh, they're just going off the charts, mate. We were we were talking, listeners, for a couple of minutes before we started, and uh, and we just heard this ping, 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 and uh, and uh, Damien Tardio, our producer and panel operator, asked Edge the question, and yes, it is. So, if you're interested in getting over to Qatar for the World Cup, uh, there's a pretty long queue right now, and. Uh, you want to get involved so you don't miss out. Now, Willem, you were in Russia. 
Um, have you already spoken to Edge about your traveling arrangements or are you going to say it home with me? No, we're going to have discussions. We're going to have discussions uh, shortly. Those bings as uh, to this point have not been me, but no, Michael and I will chat and we will see what, uh, what we can arrange. Another man having a chat to see what he can arrange is Graham Arnold. He's talking to the APL and Football Australia about bringing the A-League men's season forward. That would, of course, allow for more time for form and fitness ahead of Qatar. The FIFA window for the World Cup opens on November 14, a week before the Netherlands and Senegal kick off the tournament. The A-League start time has fluctuated in recent seasons due to the pandemic, so it is a bit of a flexible uh, flexible window, flexible start to the season. Ideally, Michael, I think you'd start in mid-September from a, a purely playing point of view, um, but we know that's obviously in the heart of the Winter Codes final series, so commercially it probably doesn't work. You, you want the sort of big splash at the start of the season, uh, so that's a balance you're going to have to strike. It is. Uh, look, I'm a country before club man when it comes to these things, uh, and that's fairly obvious. I mean, I've been deeply... Uh, engaged with the national team for a long, long time. So uh, any sort of issue that's uh, club versus country, I sort of fall on the countryside. But I do uh, appreciate probably the biggest challenge the APL clubs have is their fixture. Um, setting a fixture that's not going to move. Uh, I think the, the feedback from fans has been loud and clear. They hate floating fixtures. They hate uh, matches being moved around. They want the fixture on the fridge. They want to plan their children's birthdays, their brother's you know, going away parties, uh, weddings, everything they want to plan it around, they're going to the football. And I think uh, the APL has got a big job ahead of it to, ahead of them to sort of work this out uh, properly. But um, from Graham's perspective, um, if they can structure the A-League in a way that has maximum uh, benefit for the Socceroos, uh, why wouldn't you do it? And the other thing fans want is they want it all on a fridge magnet. Rob, there was Bedlam at Melbourne Victory a couple of seasons ago when they sent out uh, a, a membership pack without the fridge magnet and did it, and then they sent one with a QR code on it. No, people weren't having it. I want all the fixtures on my fridge from day one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it's old school, um, but uh, look, other sports are, are revisiting these, um, uh, you know, physical uh, representations of of their association. I mean, uh, um I know the AFL dropped um, membership cards, uh, the plastic membership card and the credit card style that you could keep in your wallet. And uh, they're bringing that back in the new season uh, post-COVID because uh, the fans just want it. And it, it makes sense, you know. It's a, We're a tactile community and, and in, in this digital age where everything's online, there are some things that still mean something, aren't there? Yeah, don't fix what ain't broke, as they say. Uh, and I'm going to say that about this next story. FIFA have approved the expansion of World Cup squads from 23 to 26 players with all 15 subs to be available on each match day. The squad deadlines for all nations is October 20, 30 days before kickoff between the Netherlands and Senegal. Sides will have no more than 26 people on their benches, 15 subs and 11 officials, including the manager, one of which must be a doctor. So, yeah, Rob, I'm not really in favour of this. Uh, obviously, this sort of bleeds through from uh, expanded squad sizes uh, due to COVID over the past couple of years. But I think there's something something magical and something sort of cutthroat about 23. Uh, you've got to balance the four positions. This, again, like having five substitutes, it sort of takes away a little bit of the, 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 the tactical decision-making behind a manager and sort of allows you to cover all bases a little bit more. Yeah, look, it is a point, but I do remember, you know, I, you both, you and Edge um, had a crack at me when I uh, was uh, was encouraging the uh, the decision makers to, to leave the bench um, at the extended level as it was and uh, um, yeah so I'm not as wedded to that as, as you are I just feel that um, that in this era of extended squads and, and professional players that uh, 
you know, managers always have to manage their squads, but uh, but there's a lot more games to be played, and um, and in particularly in this country where the seasons are shorter. Uh, personally, I don't mind the idea of, of more players getting the opportunity to at least get minutes on the park. Football Australia have confirmed they're considering a bid for the 2023 Asian Cup ahead of the submission deadline on June 30. The Asian Cup final is slated for June 16, just four days before the Football Ferns and Matildas kick off the Women's World Cup. Uh, Football Australia have said, we are making inquiries and having parallel discussions with the Asian Football Confederation and governments to determine the possibilities for Australia to host this tournament. At this point, South Korea still looks most likely to replace China as the hosts. They've committed uh, all uh, all guns blazing to meeting the deadline. Uh, their president, Yun Suk Yul, is all for it, Rob. He had dinner with, uh, with Son Hyung Min and the boys uh, before their recent friendly against Brazil, and he's told his sports minister to make it happen. So South Korea looking most likely, uh, but Football Australia, considering what would be a, a massive winter, well, we just need a decision, really. I mean, after China had it uh, uh, taken off them because of their, their COVID restrictions, uh, as sort of threw the whole thing into a state of flux. There, there are plenty of countries who wanted it. It'd just be nice to, to know who's going to get it, so uh, so we can uh, we can get some certainty around it. And uh, and as we're allowed to travel, uh, people. I mean, you just look at the the international airports, uh, uh, domestic airports, as well as school holidays are starting. People want to travel. They want to organise themselves. So. Uh, uh, the longer uh, it takes to make a decision, the less likely it is that they'll get uh, full houses in the stadiums. Is that a fair comment, Edge? I mean, uh, people need to plan uh, a long way out to, to, to travel to these sort of events. Oh, yeah, but Asian Cups are prom- predominantly about the uh, home the home uh, nations. I think South Korea is a really good option. Uh, Qatar was really pushing hard to achieve this, and obviously the the attraction of the new stadium and uh, their experience at uh, this World Cup would have been high on the AFC's priorities, but it would have mean that, that we would have had two um, Asian Cups in a row in West Asia, and, and uh, I know the ex- AFC executive's not too keen on that. Um, but ultimately, um, I think South Korea is a really good option. They haven't had an event for a while. They've got some fantastic football infrastructure. They have, they're very easy uh, to get to from uh, those Southeast Asian nations, and don't forget the Asian Cup's been expanded this uh, edition, so we're going to have you know, more of the Thailands, Malaysia, Vietnams, those sort of nations uh, participating again. So I think it's a good option. I think it will be a really colourful event. It's a great time of the year in Korea weather-wise. Um, yeah, I, I'm very much in favour of South Korea. It's a great football nation. It's been a long time, I think, since they've had a major tournament, probably back to the World Cup days. Yeah, so the 2002 World Cup they shared with Japan. 1960 was the last time that they hosted the Asian Cup outright, so well and truly due in that regard. Uh, The Matildas are in action this week, and Tony Gustafsson's cast the net wide again uh, for the friendlies against Spain and Portugal, the first of those which takes place on Saturday evening in Huelva. Jacinta Galabadarici, Matilda McNamara, Mackenzie Hawksby, Winona Heatley and Taylor Ray are the five uncapped players in the squad. Michael, uh, before we have a chat with Samantha Lewis on the other side, uh, no Kerr, Catley, Rasso, Ford, Fowler, Simon, Kennedy, Carpenter, Chidiak. There's an 11 right there. So what are you expecting uh, out of these couple of friendlies? Look, I'd imagine the first uh, 12 or 13 players, 14 players in that squad are already picked. Um, it's really the back end of the squad, the players that will um, form a, a backup for the front liners, uh, the ability to be substituted uh, into World Cup games uh, if things are going well, uh, when they're trying to you know, rotate players in positions to 
protect uh, fatigue uh, in a World Cup tournament. This is what these games are about. It's about choosing who you know plays 15 through to 27 or 28 are uh, and narrowing that group of players uh, in, in context of a World Cup squad. It's not far away, this World Cup, so this is a great opportunity for those players. I mean, uh, players like Kyra Kyrie Kyrie Cross who've had some injuries recently, it's a good opportunity for them to, um, to, to figure in a bit more time and press their claims. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to Sam. She'll have all the information on uh, who is likely to be closely looked at in this group. But uh, it, it, it's a fabulous opportunity for those second, um, all those plays on the fringe, but also um, the, the frontliners have had a huge workload of recent times. So uh, I think no one is begrudging players like Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Steph Catley, Lydia Williams, uh, you know, et cetera, getting an opportunity to, to put the feet up. No one is begrudging them except for you, Rob? Well, yeah, I guess I'm interested in asking. I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, leave our best work on the cutting room floor because Samantha Lewis is coming up soon. But uh, I just interpret this as a, as a high-stakes game. I mean, uh, uh, as Edge explains, we, we, we're going to get uh, a lot of experience into the legs of, uh, of players who, who might, might not be on, on, on the park. But, uh, you know, I, I rewatched um, a highlights package of that semi-final uh, loss uh, to South Korea in the Asian Cup in India. And, and the... Uh, the, the amount of uh, of near misses and poor combinations so deep into a tournament, uh, uh, as um, Georgia Yeoman-Dale, she said at, at one point early in the commentary, we've scored a lot of goals in this tournament, but the variety and the combination of play hasn't been there. And then after she makes that comment, uh, there are any number of, of scenarios where uh, where Sam Kerr has uh, guilt-edged opportunities to finish finish off or where uh, a cutback isn't uh, uh, delivered um, with the, 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 the level of accuracy that it could have been. And so I guess my biggest concern is that, that uh, yes, while these experienced players are getting the chance to rest, and it seems from Sam's article, Sam Lewis's article, that they're all very happy about that. On the other hand, um, we don't have that many opportunities against world-class opposition to put the finishing touches and get these combinations right. So um, it's, um, yeah, it's it's an all or nothing. It's like a red or black at the roulette table play for me. Okay, well, interesting to see which side of the fence Sam sits on, Rob. Let's uh, let's throw back to you and, and bring Sam in. Yeah, absolutely, Will. I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation as we all are. So stick around after the break from the ABC and The Guardian, Samantha Lewis, to discuss that series, Matildas against Spain and Portugal coming up on Box to Box. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and it's set off the top of the show. The afterglow of qualification for the Men's World Cup is starting to fade, and our laser focus returns to the Matildas. Uh, it's a little over 12 months from the 2023 Women's World Cup, which we'll be hosting uh, on home soil in conjunction with New Zealand. But uh, as we look on the, the double header against Spain and Portugal to come, we look at it through the lens of the fact that uh, Tony Gustaf's squad uh, will be an effective second or 11 with the uh, the sports science medical technical teams uh, recommending that uh, most of our or many of our senior players take extended breaks and a woman who is totally across all of that from the ABC and of course the Guardian is Samantha Lewis and we welcome you to the show Sam how are you? I'm very well it's good to be back thanks for having me. Not at all, Sam. It's been uh, uh, too long. But um, yeah, am I uh, being uh, a bit too uh, a Pollyanna about this to suggest that, that this is a really high risk strategy uh, that um, that 
there is a lot of power being uh, handed over to the the uh, the science, the medical, the technical teams to to manage the load on 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 players. Uh, uh, the likes, of course, of Sam Kerr, Steph Catley, Kai Simon, Caitlin Ford, Mary Fowler, Hayley Rasso, Alana Kennedy, Guy Critty Cross, Ivy Lewick. You know, I mean, these are, are names that. Um, that are first choice starters in the team and uh, and we're not coming off a great result in the Asian Cup. No, that's right. But I do think it's important to recognise that these footballers are also coming off largely a, a very intense club season and the vast majority of them in our senior squad actually haven't really had this thing called an off-season their entire professional careers. You know, full-time professionalism for a lot of the Matildas players has really only occurred in the last two years or so. The majority of them have come back of those awful back-to-back seasons, hopping between Australia and the USA, largely having to constantly play club football without an extended break. And that kind of intense overload can lead to fatigue, it can lead to injuries, it can lead to burnout. And we've already seen sort of some of the impacts of that over the years with certain players. Steph Catley comes to mind. Uh, She got quite badly injured during the Olympics because she developed a stress fracture in her leg because she just didn't have the kind of break for her body and her mind that she really needed. And it was exacerbated by the intensity of tournament football. So I think it's really important that we consider that these players are coming off the back of a a big European season. Some of them, like Sam Kerr, have played in multiple competitions, not just the league, but cup competitions, Champions League. You know, it's a really intense period of football. And as well, if you take the larger context of the pandemic into account, some of them haven't been home to see their friends and families for years. Sam Kerr came back to Perth only about three weeks ago for the first time in two years because of the the pandemic closing borders. So all of these things, I think, factor into the larger, uh, I suppose, cultural reset that we've seen in the Matildas over since, I guess, Tony Gustafson has taken over, which is that it's become a much more player-centric kind of group and community. And I think that's really significant because ultimately, it's the players who are on the field. And if the players aren't in the right headspace, if the players aren't feeling up to it physically, if the players have any kind of um, issues that they're dealing with, they're not going to be performing at their best. And so with consultation with the players, Football Australia's medical team and the technical staff, it was decided that a lot of the senior players would be sitting out this particular window But the other good thing about it, other than giving these really crucial players, majority of whom will likely be featuring for the Matildas come the Women's World Cup, other than giving a break, it also means that we get to see some new and emerging players who have sort of been on the fringes of the Matildas, but maybe haven't quite cracked into that starting 11 just yet. And we know that one of the big issues with the Matildas has been squad depth. So I think this window and these two games against Spain and Portugal are going to be a really crucial insight into just who we've got coming next. It will be, won't it, um, Sam? And you explain it well. And uh, and as uh, as family people uh, ourselves, we we obviously understand uh, the importance of being around loved ones at the best of times, let alone yeah. when you spend half of your life, if not more, overseas. So uh, hopefully that will be right in that next emerging group of players uh, and, and players who are seen as fringe players. And I know Edge talked about this off the top of the show. Uh, will will um, will establish their their um, positions in the squad. But uh, I guess before we move on to 
some of those players and talk about some of them. I mean, Spain is a, a wickedly difficult opponent at the best of times. Ranked seven in the world. They've got the current Ballon d'Or winner, Alexia Patelis, uh, in their squad. Uh, a dozen or so of the, uh, the Barcelona players from that uh, amazing uh, uh, team in, in their overall squad. The, so it, we... we what are we what are we expecting to see against Spain with this uh, with this uh, second string squad and 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 where are the tripwires that uh, we've got to watch out for because we, we can't afford to to, to have a, a really heavy loss uh, and drag that along uh, the uh, uh, the way towards the World Cup next year alongside of the the disappointment of the Asian Cup. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think it's worth sort of keeping in mind that Spain are probably one of the favourites to take out the upcoming Women's European Championships, uh, which is less than a month away now. So Spain are really in a position where they're fine-tuning their squad and putting the finishing touches on the players who can ideally take them to that title. Uh, as you mentioned, they've got some of the best players in the world. Alexia Pateas, the captain. Um, one of the more recent pieces of news actually coming out of Spain is that Jenny Hermoso, who is the country's top scorer, uh, is injured. So she might not actually be featuring Spain um, in the way that we thought that she would against the Matildas, which is probably a, a, a blessing um, considering uh, the, 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 the sort of roster overhaul that we're seeing. But um you know, I think I think you're right. We don't want to see a, an absolute walloping. And I don't think we will see an absolute walloping, frankly. I, I think that the players that Gustafsson has brought into the fold um, have a lot of potential. And given that they've been together, I think, for about a week now, um, they've had enough time to really gel and to understand, I think, the foundations of the kind of football Gustafsson wants them to play. Uh, but in saying that, you know, we still do uh, that. We do still have a, a sort of a spine of, of veteran players. You know, the, we've got Claire Polkinghorne in there, Emily Van Egmont, Tamika Yallop, Lydia Williams as well, anchoring between the sticks. Um, Katrina Gorry as well has been recalled after that fantastic showing against New Zealand. So we do have some really experienced central spine players who I think are going to probably anchor the Matildas against Spain and possibly also against Portugal and sort of guide and mentor the younger emerging players around them. So I don't think we're going to, to be absolutely smashed, um, but in saying that, it is Spain and Spain play the kind of football that I think the Matildas are not super familiar with. Um, they are, of course, extremely technical. They move the ball with pace. Uh, they, uh, they. If you look at the the Barcelona players as well, they press really beautifully together. They're incredibly choreographed, and they they work in numbers as well. And so it's very easily, I think, easy for perhaps some more naive younger defenders to get isolated and to feel a little bit overwhelmed when you're coming up against the wave that is a Spanish national team or a Barcelona team. So it's going to be, I think, a really good test for a couple of these players. Um, but ultimately, you know, these are the kinds of moments that need to happen. You need to be able to throw yourself into the deep end and play games like this in order to see whether a certain player sinks or swims. Because as you mentioned at the top, it's, you know, it's just over a year until we're playing in the Women's World Cup. And if we're not going to figure out who's going to be making that squad now and giving them a 12-month lead into that tournament, then, you know, we're only doing the country and the team a disservice. I've got a couple of names I want to talk to you about. Uh, you know, close observers of A-League women's football uh, would not have seen 
very much footage of these two players I'm about to mention because although they do play in significant competitions, we don't see them a lot. One is Jacinda Galbadarachi at Celtic and the other uh, is Amy Sayers at Stanford University, a program that I respect greatly. Mm. Um, what can we expect from Galbadarachi? She's been in and around the program quite a few years ago. She spent some time in the um, A-League women's competition when it was W-League with Melbourne City, but um, she's had a few clubs. Um, she's The family's taken her over to um, the UK where she had a number of clubs before she settled now for a period at Celtic. I think it's a really interesting selection. There's no doubt about her talent. Um, I think people in the game were expecting her to uh, grow and develop and mature. Maybe that maturity is coming, and it could Jacinda Galbadarachi be a bolt from the blue for the World Cup squad next. Yeah, no, Jacinta Galbadarachi, uh, she has a really interesting story. She's already a bit of a journey woman, as you've mentioned, despite the fact that she's only in her early 20s. So she started out here in Australia. She had a stint with Melbourne City and a stint with Perth Glory. Uh, and then she went abroad. She went to Europe. She uh, signed with West Ham. She had uh, half a season with Napoli. And now she seems to have really settled with Celtic. And I think the thing with Jacinta, uh, when I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago, uh, when she was called up to this squad, she never really felt like over the course of the clubs that she had played in, that she found the kind of style that she really flourishes in. But under uh, Fran Alonso, who is the Celtic head coach, he is a Spaniard himself. Um, and he really encourages the kind of Spanish style of football, I guess you could say, the the creativity, the flair, the dynamism, the improvisation, a lot of the kind of qualities that Jacinta herself possesses and has possesses since she was young. So I think because of that and being at a league perhaps where it is finally uh, fully professional, Celtic is one of the only fully professional clubs in Scotland, um, she's really found her groove and she's really settled and she's got some significant and ongoing match minutes. And I think that's been the crucial factor in her being called up to the Matildas this time round because she just wasn't playing enough over the course of her club career for the last couple of years. So now that she is, now that she's really embedded in this team, she's found uh, a system and a style that suits her, she's flourishing. You know, she won the PFA Young Player of the Year Award. Uh, she was named Celtics Player of the Year as well for her recent season. And she's been clearly noticed as well by Football Australia, by Tony Gustafson, and so has been brought in to perhaps give a bit of an X factor, something that maybe the Matildas were missing in that kind of way. Uh, she's still yet to be capped at the national team level as well. She's uh, able to declare for Argentina um, in terms of her allegiances. So this might be a really uh, pivotal and formative camp for Jacinta Galbadarachi because it might show her that her national team future does lie, in fact, with Australia, in which case we'd be thrilled to have her if she, if she wants to stay. So I really hope that she is able to be given an opportunity against Spain. Spain is a, is a nation, a national team that she deeply, deeply admires. Um, and I know that she will be absolutely gunning for the jersey of Alexia Pateas after the game as well. So I hope that she's able to, to show us what she can do and she can show herself what she can do against such quality opposition as well. And Amy Sayer, Stanford University, it's a great program. Um, college football in the US is not conducive to the Australian 
um, match uh, windows or the FIFA match windows. We know that as much, as much. but uh, Amy Sayer, um, she's been capped before four times. Uh, she's in that sort of group of players that um, um, I call them the forgotten group, the ones that were before the immediate young ones that are getting all the limelight at the moment. Amy's um, got quite a background behind her. Do you expect Amy to figure in contention for the squad next uh, Australian winter? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right. Amy Sayer is sort of part of a, I guess, a, a contracting group of Australian players who are deciding to go down the college route. Um, we've sort of had a, had a consistent line, I think, of, of uh, young women who've chosen college to pursue their football, uh, mostly for the consistency and also, of course, to get an education in addition to, to being in some really world-class facilities and, and ongoing programs. And you know, Amy Sayer sort of emerged uh, with Canberra United here in the A-League Women's, um, had a couple of seasons in Australia before deciding to go to college. And Stanford is one of the most famous and most productive in terms of developing players, um, women's soccer program in the United States. So she's landed in a really incredible spot and she's also incredibly smart. And so I'm not surprised at all that she has decided to go down this college road because her education means a lot to her just as much, if not more than football does. So she's landed in a really good position over there. Um, in terms of, I guess, her, her prospects when it comes to the Matildas, one of the big challenges that she's got is that we actually have just so many midfielders who are emerging in her age bracket, some of whom are a little bit younger and perhaps a little bit more cemented in their spot in the Matildas, such as Akara Cooney-Cross, for example. So Amy Sayer, I think perhaps because she has kind of drifted out of view somewhat and she's gone over to the United States and focused on her education. She has maybe been outside of these conversations and because it has been difficult to get sort of match footage of her, there have been a lot of fans back here in Australia who've been like, well, who is this player? You know, what what is she about? But, you know, Saya is a, a very dynamic, a, a sort of forward-thinking, attack-minded midfielder. She has a really good engine on her. Um, and I think she connects really well with with the players around her as well. She's a, a really good combo player. So she's another sort of youngster coming through who offers something different. She'll be probably thrilled to uh, be reconnecting with Tegan Micah as well, who also went through the US college system. We've got a couple of those players still sort of lingering around. Rachel Lowe is another one. So, yeah, these players, you know, they all offer something different. And I think coming through the US college system, you do definitely get uh, a football education in the sense that you, you see where this fantastic US women's national team pathway is. You see the system that develops these players. You see the kind of athleticism, the physicality, the brains, the brawn that's really required to be one of the best players in the world. So I think Amy Sayer will relish the the years that she spends with Stanford. And I think she'll bring a lot of those lessons back to her time with the Matildas. This is the, the first time that she's been part of the, the senior fold for quite a while. So she's probably developed quite a bit. Another player who I'm really excited to see what she can bring. Well, you mentioned Tegan Micah and there's a big battle on in the goalkeepers between Tegan and Lydia Williams for that number one spot, but we should uh, just for a moment, get you to reflect on Lydia Williams. She's about to play, if she starts in the match against Spain, she's about to play her 100th game for the Matildas, the girl from Tuggenon in uh, uh, in Canberra uh, area. She's made good, and um, we've all loved uh, Lydia's journey to date, but uh, she still has a lot to offer. But why don't you give us some 
um, reflective words about the importance of Lydia Williams to the Matilda's culture, uh, her Indigenous background, and just how special she is as she's on the verge of racking up her 100th game for the national team. What a magnificent achievement. It is a magnificent achievement, that's right. She uh, is about to become, if she makes an appearance against Spain or Portugal, the first woman goalkeeper in Australia to reach a century of appearances, which is extraordinary. The, you know, she's 34 years old. She has, she's the most experienced Matilda aside from Cliff Hulkinghorn. She has been part of this regeneration of players and one of my fondest memories of Lids, it's not just watching her sort of emerge uh, with Canberra United flourishing in the A-League women's, but my most significant memory of Lydia is that she was the face of Matildas in 2015 when the team decided to go on strike. And that moment was so pivotal for this group. It was so pivotal for women's football in Australia. That strike happened because the players themselves felt like they were not being valued by the governing body. They had just come back uh, or were about to embark on uh, a, a tour of the USA. They were about to face the reigning world champions and they didn't have uh, any security. They didn't have any guaranteed wages. They didn't have any of the things that they all of the Matildas and all women, most women footballers around the world now have in terms of contractual security and agreements with their federations. So Lydia was one of the PFA delegates. She was one of the biggest voices in the room and she was the one who fronted the media and spoke about how important it was that they were recognised as workers, that they were recognised as contributing something of great value to the Australian community and to football. And it worked. Football Australia were like, you know what, you're right. You know, we, we need to settle this now. We need to ensure that you're insured. We need to ensure that you've got all of your, um, all the foundations basically of becoming the professional athletes that they now have, that they've now become. And were it not for Lydia and for that group of players at that particular moment doing that particular thing, we wouldn't have seen a couple of years later Australia become one of the first nations to embed gender equality into their national team pay structure. The Matildas probably wouldn't have become as high profile and as famous and as adored as they have become. She has really been, I think, the beating heart of this Matildas side in this newest era of theirs. And the fact that she is a very proud First Nations woman, she was born in Western Australia in the desert. She has a, an Indigenous father and an African-American mother. And she is so eloquent, so passionate and so full of joy and happiness whenever she takes the field. She's a complete inspiration for so many people around the country. And when she earns her 100th cap, it's going to be a really historic moment, but it's just going to be a really thoroughly deserved moment for one of Australia's greatest ever footballers. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, we, we know our listeners will really have enjoyed it. They love a deep dive into football matters and, uh, and you've given them exactly that. No problem. Anytime. Thank you so much. 
not at all, Samantha Lewis from the ABC and The Guardian. Look up her copy in The Guardian. It's great stuff. And, uh, of course, her, her uh, reporting with the ABC. Okay, stick around. We're going to shift gear and have a look at the Socceroos, the under-23s in the Asian Cup. Geez, that didn't work out the way we'd hoped. But, uh, anyway, we'll talk about it next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chat with Samantha Lewis there. Uh, we will find out just how the, well, it's the second string Matildas, how they'll go. If they do well, then uh, we are well and truly set up for a big World Cup in the coming year as another ping arrives, another inquiry to Edges Inbox. Before we get started on the Socceroos, the under-23s uh, Asian Cup wrap-up, I just want to tell you about our friends at Chemist Warehouse. Yes, the nature's own vitamins range is half price right now at Chemist Warehouse. There's nature's own glucosamine sulfate, 400 tablets for just $20.99. If you've got sore joints, you need glucosamine. It helps to recover the joints and helps to aid the, uh, the, the use of weary and aging joints, as I well know with a wonky knee. Nature's own complete sleep advanced edge. You might need some of that. 60 tablets for $21.49 as you're traveling around the world, waking up at odd hours. Sale excludes bulk sizes. And while you're at Chemist Warehouse, you can stop, stock up and save on Robitussin Chesty Cough. It's the middle of winter in Australia. 250 mils, just $8.99. Don't wait until you need it. It's always handy in the middle of the night if you've got kids to have that Robitussin in your medical cabinet. Advil Minis, liquid 90 capsules, $16.99 each, and Sistane Complete, preservative-free eye drops for $22.99. Chemist Warehouse, great savings every day. So you might get down to, is there a Chemist Warehouse nearby where you are, Ed? You'll have to wait till you get home and, uh, and stock up on some of that Nature's Own Complete Sleep Advanced. Oh, I've had such little sleep. I've been getting up at all sorts of uh, hours for meetings and phone calls and you name it. I wandered into, into Dubai Mall two days ago and said to the bloke uh, who was uh, the security guy, I said, look, can you point me in the direction of the closest chemist warehouse? And he looked at me and went, <laughs> what? <laughs> but you didn't say it in, uh, in Arabic. That was the problem. So if you had have said uh, it that's in right. the local yeah. dialect, how, how, how would I say that, Rob? How would I say that? Okay, just pause for a moment and I'll come back to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, Willem, um, we, look, we've talked a lot about the Matildas so far, so um, uh, we're probably going to talk a little more about the Socceroos and the under-23s um, in this uh, in this yarn. We will, Rob, but it is still called Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Packages are on sale now for the 2022 Qatar World Cup, which feature 13 nights accommodation in Doha's official Socceroos fan base and a guaranteed ticket to each of the Socceroos three matches. There's also access to a Socceroos training session, three world-famous Green and Gold Army pre-match events and cultural experiences on offer, Michael, including the Sheikh Faisal bin Qasim Al Thani Museum. Packages are limited and flying off the shelves from what we hear, so get in today head to ggatravel.com.au. No mucking about, Willem. It's time to uh, book your place and uh, uh, be in Doha, Qatar in November and December alongside the Socceroos and Witness History, our fifth straight FIFA World Cup. And uh, uh, this team, uh, based on the heroics in the qualification campaign, deserve all support uh, we can muster as a footballing nation to take on the world. France, Tunisia and Denmark in that order at uh, El Wakra, uh, El Janoub Stadium. Uh, it's going to be uh, something 
to behold and uh, and you'll be able to say, I was there. And I can honestly say choosing to go to Russia with the Grenegan Army is one of the best things I've ever done. I, I still think about it in terms of the people I've met. There's still a number of people I'm in touch with, but also for me personally, I mean, it's not going to be the same for everyone, but the professional opportunities that have opened up and have sort of flown and the, the positive impact that that trip still has on my life uh, each and every day, uh, I, can't, I can't understate it, so uh, or can't overstate it rather. So if you are thinking about it, if you are on the fence, take the plunge. You, you cannot possibly regret uh, a World Cup trip with the Green and Gold Army. Is Mas Luongo going to be there, Michael? He's missed the last two. Oh, no, he's been to the last two, but he hasn't gotten on the pitch, which is a little bit heartbreaking. Uh, we've been invested in his story. He's been in the wilderness under Graham Arnold, um, and now he's also been let go by Sheffield Wednesday. So you just wonder if now is the time to get to the A-League. Uh, it's probably going to only give him five or six weeks, uh, but it would be guaranteed football. And if fit, he could possibly throw his name in the ring. Well, we've... Um... We've been lamenting he's been missing for a long time now, and there's obviously a reason for that. And we know he's been struggling a little bit with um, some injuries as he gets on a little bit later uh, towards the end of, or, you know, the, the, the sort of back third of his career. Well, I wouldn't say he's uh, finished by any means, but yeah, I probably think he needs to come back to the A League and just remind everyone how much better he is than sort of the standard A-League player. And um, Mass is an extremely good player. We've seen his quality and uh, we've seen him be a really significant part of the Socceroos uh, in um, years gone by. So um, if there's a chance, uh, Mass, to get to the A-League, I think that's probably a good idea, uh, depending on what else he's got on the table. But, um, you know, he could come back and uh, really show himself and who knows uh, how that would uh, pan out in the eyes of Graham Arnold and, uh, and the coaches who are making decisions on... Uh, people in that position, which is the screening midfielder or or attacking midfielder, he's got capacity to play in both spots. And we know um, he's had a very good career and he's played uh, important roles at smaller clubs in very competitive leagues for a long time. Jason Davidson went to the 2014 World Cup and played all three matches. Uh, we know he's inside the tent at the moment. He was over there in Doha over the past couple of weeks. He's on the move. He's off to Belgian side Eupen, where, of course, Tim Cahill's a board member and Jimmy Jago uh, is one of the players. Their season starts on July 24, so maybe he's looked at it the other way and thought victory aren't going to start until uh, whenever it's still undecided. So July 24, he can get uh, a good few months in ahead of November. So good luck to Jason there. From a coaching front, Harry Kuehl has joined Ange Postacoglu at Celtic as a first-team coach, a move he's described as a no-brainer. We know Harry's rolled up his sleeves at the lower end of the English pyramid with Barnet, Notts County, Crawley Town, Oldham Athletic, and hasn't really been rewarded as yet. So he's off to, uh, to Celtic. He's going to replace Steve McManus, who's gone to the club's reserve team. And Rob, you will recall, in 2019-20, I started in this segment Postacoglu watch, Ange Postacoglu mm -hmm. watch when he was over in Japan at Yokohama. He was out of the Australian spotlight and he led that side towards the J-League title. So it gives me great pleasure to say, as of right now, we are on musky watch. 17 games down, 17 to go. Yokohama F. Marinos lead the J-League by a point and they've got an away trip to Shimizu this Saturday. So musky watch is on in earnest. Well, you did start um, Ange Postacoglu watch back then, probably about the same time you started the vault, which we'll have to sort of uh, dust off at some point in the uh, in the future. But, um, you know, if you were a lucky charm for musky in the same way that you were for Ange, then uh, watch out because uh, he's done some wonderful things. He really hit the ground running and uh, the, uh, the culture of obviously, in style of, of Australian football managers um, seems, you know, despite the language barrier, to be remarkably effective. So, uh, yeah, we'll watch and hopefully we can we can get Muskie on or at the very least um, uh, one of the boys from the Asian game to, to dig a little deeper into the, the second half of the, of the J-League season as it comes about. 
Now, the we're vault not... is well and truly in the vault and will not be being dusted off, Michael. Yeah, I just want to reflect on Jason Davidson. Um, I actually think he was uh, right in the frame to play in the qualifiers. He lined up in the um, you know left uh, fullback position in the in the practice match against Jordan. And I think we took a little bit out of that. You know, Kai Rolls cemented a place in from, from that team as, as, as so some other starters. So I thought uh, Graham Arnold might have had Jason Davidson in the mix, but he injured his hamstring about 35 minutes into the first half of that game and sliding doors as his Bates uh, then played, you know, every moment other than the, part, the, the last few minutes of extra time. For the following two qualification games, it was probably one of our better performers. But um, so Jason Davidson moved to Belgium is probably a good one. I think he's right in the mix uh, if he can get fit and uh, healthy. Uh, I think he's right in the mix because I think he adds a, a, a little something a little bit different than as is. They're, they're quite different players in that position. So it'll be interesting to uh, to see how that unfolds and whether Jason can get any momentum at all. In Belgium, his workload was quite strange, Michael, because he played for victory in the the two legs against Western United, which were obviously taxing affairs uh, and only three or four days apart. They lost victory. Then, less than three days later, he was playing for the A League All Stars uh, against Barcelona. Played about twenty five minutes there, and then went off with what looked to be a hamstring injury. So, uh, you would have thought by that stage, you would have been sort of clued up that he was going to be part of the Socceroos squad. Uh, I know that A-League All-Stars squad was was fan-picked and it was quite hard to get out of it. I know a couple of players managed to do th- so through the PFA. Uh, but for Davidson to play that, pick up what looked like a little injury and then be into Socceroos camp and pick up another one, uh, maybe the communication wasn't there. But yeah, it certainly seems strange that he was playing uh, for the All-Stars when he, he was a required member of the, uh, the Socceroos qualification campaign. Let's have a look at the under-23s. As Rob said throughout the show, they really did flame out, unfortunately. And the Paris Olympics dream is over. They lost to Saudi Arabia 2-0 in the semi-final. They had a double chance in the third place playoff, but were never really in that and lost to Japan 3-0. Michael, did you catch any of this, the Saudi game? It really just wasn't their day. Three really good opportunities early. Tyrese Francois hit the uh, hit the, the crossbar. They just couldn't bury them. And then a ridiculous red card, really. Jay Rich Bagaloo, who's fast becoming one of our favourites. Uh, as he was clearing the ball, the Saudi player ran into his leg quite deliberately, went down and made the most of it. And on VAR, the uh, the decision was given red card. I did watch the game. Uh, we were pretty much outplayed after Rich Bagaloo was um, given his marching orders. Can I just say on that red card, when I was watching it, it looked like the uh, the referee was a, a pretty... Um, must have been a fan of UFC because when you slowed it down in slow motion, it looked like Richard done some some sort of weird UFC move where he'd had a second movement to kick uh, the player in the head, which was just, you know, in, in normal motion, it was just a, a very odd sort of, um, you know, coming together of two players uh, chasing the ball. So it was a quite a strange and um, weird sending off and, we, we, we really weren't in the game after that point, but but um, yeah, look, you know, it just shows you um, where that that uh, that team's at and that sort of group of players. They did really well. Um, you know, Alu Kowal was um, outstanding through the entire tournament. Um, he, he's we know he's got a big future, uh, but I think that's uh, holds us in good stead uh, for the develop. I mean, there's a lot made of that group of players who eventually go to an Olympics, uh, then going on and, and playing. For the Socceroos, there's quite a healthy um, talent pathway for that group of players. So let's just see who comes out of out of that group and um, what will happen in the next AFC Under-23 
uh, event, which is in two years' time. And we know Tom Glover was the goalkeeper who is probably of the age bracket where he could have been the heir apparent to uh, Matt Ryan, but maybe he's had a little bit of a disappointing season uh, with Melbourne City. So Joe Gauchy, I think, certainly put his name up in lights as one who could have yeah. a uh, an international future when when time does come for Matt. He's certainly in the uh, in the right age bracket. Certainly is, and uh, I know some some good judges in the goalkeeping uh, stakes say that he's probably ahead of Glover, but. Uh, time will tell. Time will tell. Rob, before we throw back to you, uh, football really does just march on, doesn't it? The Australia Cup dates are in place for the draw or for the round of 32, Wednesday, June 29. So not too far away at all. This week, in fact, uh, the final 32 matches will be drawn. The final is going to be on Saturday, October 1. The winner gains direct entry into the AFC Asian Cup. So not the Champions League, but the, uh, the level below. We've got 27 of the 32 sides qualified. And as we're all looking forward to, uh, just before we speak to uh, an historian of our game, Trevor Thompson. We're going to see the return of the Australia Cup name finally uh, in use for the first time since 1968. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, it's a it's a great story, especially after uh, the uh, well the ignominious end to the physical trophy, or at least nearly end the way it was uh, thrown into uh, a skip at um, at uh, I think it was Sunshine George Cross uh, that or the Hokoa Club, and it was recovered. And I guess it uh, it does indicate. Um, perhaps a, a shifting of the pendulum in terms of the respect that we now pay for our history and uh, as you say we've got a, um, a great chat coming up with uh, with Trevor Thompson uh, co-author of the book Burning Ambition after the break so um, yeah we'll um, look forward to seeing that great name uh, come back into Australian football lore over over the coming months and, and years ahead all right well well done uh, Edge you're going to uh, going to jump on the bench mate um, you've done the, the first half of the show but you're a very busy man answering all these inquiries so uh, we'll say farewell to you for for this week's episode, and uh, and we'll we'll wrap it up with Willem and, and Derek. Um, and uh, mate, um, just make sure you get all those bookings in and and save a seat for for Willem. I'll be saving a seat for Willem for sure. And uh, thanks to all our listeners around um, the world. And I bumped into a few of them in Qatar uh, who mentioned to me that they like to listen to our program. And of of course, Rob, uh, that's always um, a good feeling when you bump into someone who says, ah, listen to your podcast and get a lot out of it. So thanks to everybody who listens to us. And um, and I'm sure uh, you're going to enjoy um, the ride as we lead up to what is going to be um, uh, the biggest football event for this year, the, the 2022 FIFA World Cup Qatar. Thanks, guys. No worries, that's right. It's Trevor well, mate. Okay, after the break, as I mentioned, Trevor Thompson, football historian and author of the book Burning Ambition. We're wrapping up the centenary celebrations of the first ever Socceroos squad uh, picked in 1922 to head across the Tasman. Trevor is an absolute expert on the subject and we will talk to him next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And as all football supporters were aware, the past week we celebrated the centenary of the Socceroos. And as those reflections come to a conclusion, we welcome to the show the co-author of the book Burning Ambition, football historian Trevor Thompson. How are you, Trevor? Very well, thanks. It's been a great week and a fabulous anniversary. It has been, hasn't it, mate? And you've really brought to light some stories that uh, I think uh, not just football fans, uh, but uh, sporting fans in general in this country were pleased to hear. But perhaps a little disappointed to hear about the, I guess, lacklustre uh, or careless even way that uh, that some of the, the, the great heritage that you reflect on in the book um, has been handled over, well, the past six, seven decades. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But, you know, this is uh, part of how our story has unfolded 
over, you know, well over a century. If you go back to, you know, even the late 19th century and follow it through, we've always had waves and uh, crashes on the sand and it's been that kind of history. And, uh, well, you know, we might at least take some small satisfaction from the fact that we're, we're, we are at least acknowledging this history now. And we are mm. talking about it. Um, you know, unfortunately for uh, for the whole event, um, our, our brothers and sisters across the border in New Zealand is even lower key than uh, than we've become used to. Yeah, I guess um, we uh, we came to the the anniversary off the back of uh, the great news of the soccer is qualifying for the World Cup, and um, yeah, they got the the other end of the the pineapple, didn't they, mate? But uh, for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the background to the story, so it recounts the genesis of the first Australian and New Zealand national teams and the inaugural three tests in New Zealand in June 1922, and then the return series in 1923. And I'm also interested um, as you respond. In uh, in the fate of the trophy, which has been lost to, to time. Yeah, the trophy hasn't been seen since the 1950s, and uh, when it was first uh, brought into being in 1923, this was meant to be a kind of permanent reminder of the solidarity between the two countries, uh, an emblem of rivalry, yes, but also of a kind of brotherhood of um, football cultures. Um, well, it sort of faded away pretty quickly. And after the 1950s, um, it, it didn't get mentioned at all. Nobody knows where it is. It'd be great to find it. What an artifact that would be. But it's maybe symbolic of those uh, waves and crashes that we referred to earlier, that there was a bit of a celebration in the form of the uh, the trophy. And the, the crash happened, um, the disappearance of the trophy, not even there anymore. It's, it's a pretty good uh, little physical indicator of the the fortunes of uh, of football over those years, uh, Trevor. It's worth mentioning that 1922 we now celebrate it as the the birth of the Socceroos. But there was, uh, as you've put it, a 40 year long push uh, prior to that to to codify and play and organise uh, international competition before it eventually got off the ground against New Zealand. So could you please, uh, for those interested in the book, take us just before the the book, if you like, and just give us a little bit of that history pre 1922. Yeah, look, it is as you say, it's a long history. It's 40 years. Uh, between the first intercolonial games in Australia, when New South Wales and Victoria played each other, and they proudly wrote off to the uh, uh, the press and to the Football Association in London to explain what it is that they'd be doing, and that was the first approach to England about some kind of contact on the field, whether here or whether in Britain, uh, to to get the international ball rolling. Well, it it kind of went nowhere. And it went nowhere several times. We made representations to London. We had people visiting the FA to make a case, both from New Zealand and from Australia. And we should actually acknowledge that New Zealand did more of this work than Australia did. Um, and, uh, you know, it just never, never really, uh, took off. There could be sympathetic hearings from the Football Association in London, but nothing really much happening on the ground. But, you know, we, we, dealt with uh, private entrepreneurs, which explored all sorts of channels, but it just didn't happen. And it wasn't until after the First World War uh, when we decided that maybe we're just going to have to do this ourselves instead of you know waiting for somebody else to hold our hands and uh, help us do it uh, from, through some other means, that it finally happened. And when it did happen, this was the opening of a door to a, a new world, particularly for Australia, where we ended up playing 
you know, scores of matches over the next uh, 10, 11 years. We say in the book that uh, Australia becomes the single most active national team anywhere in the world. If you put together all of the uh, matches against not just national teams, but regional selections, state teams, club size, you name it, um, Australia gets uh, something in, in the order of 100 matches in the space of 10 or 11 years. That's from a standing start of zero. And so if the, the original intention was with New Zealand to form a sort of strong um, of brotherhood and partnership in football to take on uh, other nations across the British Empire, and they did finally get off to, to such a, a great start throughout the 1920s, uh, just take us a little bit beyond the book, if you could, and, and sort of tell us where it, where it sort of started to go wrong. Well, during the 1920s, I mean, it's, it's, it's a complex thing, but there's an introduction in Australia of a kind of semi-professionalism. Uh, in New South Wales and Queensland, at least, where uh, you know big crowds are turning up for some of these new games, the players wanted the biggest slice of that. The clubs wanted uh, could see how many people were turning up and you know, see that there is a, uh, a spectator constituency for uh, for football. And why don't we uh, make this into you know a club competition uh, world? in the way that we were familiar with back in Britain, for instance, from people who did come from that background, which was a pretty big section of them, uh, why don't we make it a bit more professional? Um, this meant that there'd be a competition in a way between the old associations and the new uh, the new competitions, yeah, something which we repeated again, of course, uh, most dramatically in the 1950s, and you could argue, I suppose, uh, even beyond that. Um, and it kind of just fell apart. There's also the depression, of course, comes along and makes a lot of these kinds of uh, travelling ventures much more difficult. But And there's also the our failure to connect with the boom in football on the international stage, being the Olympics, and, of course, the World Cup. You know, Australia could have played in World Cups three times before the Second World War, but we didn't get there because we weren't members of FIFA. All of those competitions could have been... Um, offered some kind of assistance to teams that wanted to participate. Yeah, the Uruguayans famously paid everybody's costs to go to the World Cup in 1930, but we didn't go uh, because we weren't members of FIFA. Um, there are all sorts of little structural problems like that, uh, but they kept going and kept going, and that's what makes these guys so admirable, that no matter what obstacles you put in their way, they'd find a way of getting over them and keep and, and and keeping going. I think they're uh, they're people we should respect. We should know who they are. We we should celebrate the fact that this is our federal foundation story. These are the people who make it happen. So when we go out on the field, the World Cup later this year, uh, all of the people on the field, the heirs of this fantastic uh, history and uh, determination. Yeah, you know, the DNA that uh, Graham Arnold talks about. We we interpret in a certain way. But the bit that I identify with most strongly, I think, is the fact that they just keep going. They never give up. They just kept going and they made it. They made an international side and eventually they found their play world. Drover, a little tidbit out of the series in 1922 and 1923. The numbers on the back of the uh, on the back of the jerseys and the way that they organised players through numbers, that was, uh, that was unique for the time, I'm led to believe. That's right. Look, that's our little contribution to world football, I think, that uh, these two teams in that first match of the first series in Dunedin in 1922, 
that was the first international match where both of the teams um, wore numbers on their backs. The Kiwis have been doing this since before, probably before the turn of that century, and Australia quickly um, uh, took part on it as well. In 1904 and 1905, when New South Wales made the tour to New Zealand and had the reciprocal tour the next year, they all wore numbers too. Um, so this is just something that we did. Nobody really remarked on it that much. Um, but, uh, you know, nobody would think twice about uh, uh, you know, looking at a football match in modern times and seeing players that weren't wearing numbers. It's inconceivable. But, you know, we should remember that uh, FIFA didn't uh, endorse or require uh, numbers on shirts at the World Cup until 1950. Um, in England, where there is a kind of story about the people who introduced numbers, which is a little misleading, uh, they didn't. Ha- they had a few experiments before 1930, but the first big match that they had with numbers on backs was the FA Cup final, which was in 1932. So we were well ahead of all of this sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's just something that uh, we should take a bit of pride in that too. That's something that we gave international football and probably a good time on this uh, centenary event to remember that that's, that's our contribution. That's something we brought to the brought to the table. And looking forward on the 100th year centenary or the 100th year anniversary, the centenary, it is only fitting that we are going to play New Zealand in a couple of friendlies uh, later this year, the first of those at Eden Park on September 25, and then the Australian leg to uh, follow. Uh, so that is fitting, I suppose, but to an extent also sort of, uh, reflective of the the uh, the neglect of the history and that we haven't played them in 10 years. Back when these series were first kicked off, the idea was that it would be such a strong partnership uh, and that really has been uh, allowed to fritter away over the years. Yeah, look, I don't know if it's uh, so much frittering away, although I think there's some truth in that. The fact that Oceania is still the home for New Zealand and that Asia is the home for Australia is uh, a, a good reason to explain the uh, the diverging paths of the two countries. Um, but yes, I think we should have that kind of uh, spirit between us, which is, uh, as you point out, been allowed to dissipate a, a bit. Um, I'm looking forward to the two matches, just uh, you know, to maybe reactivate um, that shared culture that we have. Whether it continues beyond a commemorative uh, fixtures uh, or not uh, remains to be seen. I'd like it to be uh, to continue, but you know the fact that it's happening at all is a good sign, and that is part of our shared culture. And um, yeah, that's that's something we should uh, yeah take our hats off and acknowledge. Yeah, agreed. Uh, it's um it's a it's a great history that you recount and one that um, that both sides of the Tasman should be proud of. Uh, you and your co-author, Nick Goeth, uh, have put together a wonderful book published by Fair Play Publishing, who've uh, put out some excellent football publications. It's available online, uh, 39.95. I'd really recommend uh, just do a quick search into Google. It's very easy to find. Before we let you go, though, uh, I touched on the trophy at the beginning, and uh, and for most fans, they'll be have no idea of what the, the football Ashes Trophy looks like. We all know the way that cricket uh, reveres and protects the uh, the priceless uh, Ashes Trophy of uh, of, uh, of its heritage. But uh, the Trans-Tasman Trophy is a small razor box mounted in a casket made from wood from both countries. So 
uh, the New Zealand honeysuckle and the Australian maple. It's decorated with a kangaroo and a silver fern. Now, inside the razor box, which had been donated, as it turns out, by Queensland Football Association Secretary William Fisher, a soldier carried it with him at the Gallipoli landing where the ashes of cigars smoked by the Australian captain Alec Gibb and his New Zealand counterpart George Campbell uh, after the first series were, were in, um, contained. So, you know, it's just uh, so sad that we don't know where it is. And, and at least to their credit, um, after the, uh, the the story of, of the infamous story even of the, uh, the Australian Cup being thrown out uh, back in 2011, um, for the past couple of years of, of being searching with uh, with one of your fellow historians, Ian Sison, uh, Chris Niku is involved, Football Nation Radio's Dave Krunich. Um, what, what do you know about the trophy? Um, you talked about 1954 being the last time it was cited. Are there any leads that we know of? Um, uh, is there any hope that it'll be found again? I don't think we should give up hope on it. I think that there's um, a couple of possible trails, but you know, people have followed these trails before and, uh, yeah, reached a dead end. But, um, yeah, like uh, the spirit of the people who brought that trophy into being, maybe we should just keep uh, beavering away and not giving up on it, keep searching for it. Uh, one day maybe we will find it. There's a couple of ideas that you hear uh, tossed around. Um, uh, it's not worth going into all of them because it uh, becomes a, a bit of a, a fantasy land in, to some respect. But there are, you know, uh, little leads and we've just got to keep uh, searching we've got to keep looking and uh, let's just see what we can find Trevor it's been wonderful talking to you Trevor Thompson football historian uh, co-author of the book Burning Ambition uh, if you're a football fan in this country and you want to reflect on the great history which we don't uh, pay as much respect to as we should um, then I urge you to get your hands on it and uh, uh, we, uh, we're really grateful for the time you've taken to have a chat to us as, uh, as we play a small part in wrapping up the, uh, the celebrations of, uh, of the centenary of, of the Socceroos first match against New Zealand back in June 1922 it's my pleasure. It's great to uh, share the passion with people who care. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor Thompson. Uh, maybe we'll talk to Trevor again when, uh, well, hopefully we might find that trophy one day. We're back to real time, uh, stoppage time. After the break, Derek's back and uh, we'll catch up on all the stories we haven't discussed so far on box to box box to box for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is box to box. Been a great show so far. Really loved to hear some of that uh, that football history that we reflected on just now with Trevor Thompson, the centenary of the Socceroos coming to a conclusion this part of this week. And of course, Sam Lewis as the Matildas start to return to centre stage uh, with uh, a little over a year before the World Cup. Uh, but we are in stoppage time. Edges has taken a seat on the bench and Willem sort of snuggled over there and taken his spot. Uh, uh, Derek, uh, welcome to the show for the first time this week, um, and uh, we've got plenty, plenty to get through, mate. Um, but we wanted to start off with something that I think you and I, I reckon, were reading this article at exactly the same time uh, in the Athletic um, to celebrate 30 years of the Premier League. Uh, the Athletic uh, is writing a series of articles paying tribute to the 50 greatest individual performances in its history and ranked at number 45, if you don't mind. Um, and a lot of the comments in the comments section, Derek, uh, uh, question why it's ranked so low is Mark Viduka's famous four-goal performance for Leeds against Liverpool. 
It's a really interesting way of looking at Premier League history. You've got to look at the words really clearly. It's the 50 greatest individual performances in its history. And in fact, I've only just read that and gone. They are going to be looking at it from the individual point of view. We were talking off air about, you know, is Aguero going to win this? But does an individual performance count as one moment, I suppose? It's the most iconic moment in Premier League history, you could probably argue. But what we're talking about here is fabulous individual performances. And of course, Mark Faduka and four goals. I mean, you've got to think, what are these other performances like if this is only 45th? Because it it clearly was an absolutely stunning individual performance from him in November 2000. This was original Leeds, not Leeds 2.0 in the Premier League with their recent resurgence uh, in recent years. This was the Leeds of David O'Leary and Rob sent a clip around and it was great to see some of the names on that team sheet. It was not just Mark Viduka, but of course, Harry Kuehl played in that team. Uh, Alan Smith played in that team. Rio, a young Rio Ferdinand was in that team. Paul Robinson was in goal. Ian Hart, uh, Gary Kelly, uh, just lo- lots of, you know, not just Premier League stalwarts, but, you know, players that are and would become superstars as well, obviously, before the demise of, of Leeds United and their long climb back to the top of... English football, but Viduka on the day, he said that in reflection or in the post-match interview, he said he didn't actually play that well in his mind. Well, I, I, I beg to differ because there were four goals and there were four excellent, extraordinary goals, uh, really exploring Viduka's technique in particular. Uh, a couple of them were very similar. They've very cute chipped finishes into the corner past the uh, prone Liverpool goalkeeper, who I think was Sander Vesterveld. So there's a name I haven't said for, for some time. But also just his ability to create space. And we often talk, Rob, about the fact that Australia don't create players like Mark Viduka anymore. But I would argue, watching this performance again, does does world football create players like Mardu Viduka anymore? It was a stunning display of technique for a big man. Yeah, it, it is a good point. And I think it's one thing that as Australian football fans that we uh, ought to reflect on, that uh, that we were blessed with one of the the, uh, the great strikers of all time, as the article describes him, the, the six foot three inch Australian displaying the sort of poise and delicacy you don't expect quite expect from a man of his dimensions and uh, and as you say that you know for him to be as humble as he was to uh to and, and he does describe it in quite some detail as to as to why he didn't feel that um that it was uh, one of his most memorable performances in fact he goes on to talk about some of his memorable performances in in terms of his ability to hold up play to distribute the ball and to, and to make other players look good uh, uh in in less convincing wins uh, uh as opposed to uh, uh, four strong four successful goals that all happened for him well on the one day but uh, yeah you're, you're right about that um, that they, they don't uh, make strikers of his type that often and um, and he was part of that great golden generation of ours and uh, while he famously missed the first penalty in that shootout against Uruguay back in 2005 in that campaign that got us to the World Cup and during the World Cup itself he was uh, he was incredible uh, Rob, do you remember the, this game at all? Um, you know, two thousand. Yeah, look, I, I do remember this, and and um, and this was in that era where any Australian who didn't follow Leeds uh, had uh, a, 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 you know a genuine interest in in the way Leeds were going because of Viduka and Kuehl and Mark Bridges, of course, uh, and 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 how well they were going at the time and showcasing Australian football on the world stage. And, and let's not forget, it was uh, it was uh, in, in the years that led up to our eventual breakthrough and and all of our 
our hopes were were um, were riding on these players to, to get us through to, to that World Cup and break that uh, that drought that had been ongoing since 1974. So, uh, yeah, it, w- it was a marvellous moment. But, again, it's a very different era in 2022 that we live in, isn't it, where you can wake up in the morning and turn your Optus Sports app on and watch a little highlights package without, uh, you know, the spoiler alert coming on. So, you know, these were the days where, you know, you had to get up in the middle of the night and, uh, and, and sometimes you needed to go to a club or a pub somewhere to watch the game. So, um, yeah, I remember it well. And um, and even though it was against Liverpool, um, I concede that um, my Australian allegiances uh, uh, overrode my uh, my red allegiances on that occasion. Willem, you would have probably been in diapers when this... Uh, you're probably not going to remember this game when it happened, but what are your reflections on this one? Well, my reflections, a uh, nice little bit of trivia that there was another Aussie on the pitch with Viduka that day, but it wasn't Harry Kuehl. It was Jacob Burns who had a, a spell at Leeds uh, across that that sort of golden era, a bit more of a bit part player and went on to have a very, very good career uh, in the A-League, won a, a Joe Marsden medal in the grand final for Perth Glory famously. So yeah, the uh, the trivia there is that Jacob Burns was the uh, the third Aussie banana at Leeds at the time. Um, I've got a couple that I'd like to throw up as, as fantastic Premier League performances, Derek. One that goes right back to the very start of my experience, the first time I saw the Premier League, and that was sort of 2009 when 1HD came in, one of the sort of secondary channels for Channel 10, and it was an all-sports station. And for myself at 12 years of age, it was heaven, and they had a few Premier League games on. And I remember seeing Andre Arshavin score four goals against Liverpool. I know exactly where I was because it was, of course, away at Anfield, so I wasn't at the game, but I was in a pub in on Hampstead Heath, or near Hampstead Heath. Don't remember the name of it, but I was with a couple of Arsenal fans and I honestly remember, actually, do you know what? I was absolutely heartbroken by this game because, yes, it was an amazing performance, but Arsenal threw the lead away against Liverpool four times. <laughs> it was four all. And it was four all, an amazing game. Liverpool nicking a, a draw right at the death. It might have been Dirk Cows or someone like that. So I remember my friends actually saying, to, telling me to cheer it up and, you know, wasn't it just an amazing game? And I just remember ruefully thinking, we were up. We were we were in the lead four times at Anfield, and we still didn't win the games. But it was a terrific performance. What, what about you, Rob? Any thoughts there? Yeah. Look, um, the the moment that that I wanted to, to share was my own personal experience in the cop, um, and uh, and and identify the cop itself, the twelfth man, as that 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 <laughs> wonderful uh, uh, influence on Liverpool games. Because on that occasion, back in uh, twenty eighteen, when Liverpool beat Manchester City three uh, one in, uh, in in an incredible match that I had the privilege of sitting in the cop in. I, I truly, finally sensed uh, what people had been talking about all of those years, and the fact that 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 living, breathing mass of humanity that is the cop can actually suck the ball into the goals. And uh, and I, I left that ground with physical injuries on my shins and and my arms from uh, having buffeted, been buffeted about by by the fans. So I know it's not quite the answer that people expect, and it was a Champions League goal. But I think anybody who's watched a, a Liverpool play over the years and some of those magnificent uh, uh, scenes of, of the cop uh, itself um, uh, dragging the the, um, the Reds home at Anfield uh, would agree that um, that as a 12th man and a magic moments that um, but there are any number of them over the history of the Premier League that uh, you can attest to. Well, I'll tell you what, Rob, we will we will come back to this. So like, there are 44 more to go, so maybe we can come up with some more suggestions or appraise some others. Mine, you know, just off the top was. Another Arsenal moment, obviously, Dennis Bergkamp's hat-trick 
at Leicester. Leicester. I think this was the month. This was in 1998. This was the month that um, uh, that Dennis Bergkamp was number one, number two, and number three in the in the, the BBC's Goal of the Month competition. Uh, and he scored a hat trick at Leicester. One of the most beautiful. Had goals, particularly one where he pulled it down over the defender and scored. It was very similar to the one that he later went on to score against Argentina in that amazing World Cup. And the little footnote, again, a bit like Andre Arshavin, Arsenal only drew that game 3 all. And after the amazing Burkamp hat-trick clincher, Leicester scored a goal and it ended 3 all. Willem? <laughs> uh, if we can segue into the transfer chat, Derek, uh, another guy, or a guy we're about to speak about, Sadio Mane, uh, he's going to be right up there, surely, when it comes to the pointy end of that count. Three goals in two minutes for Southampton in 2015 against Aston Villa. Yeah, no, that, that, that was a stunning uh, performance uh, from Mane. Just reminds me too, and I'm surprised Rob didn't pick this one out, Luis Suarez's four goals against Norwich at Anfield. And he scored, it was almost, it was the most unbelievable selection of goals you've ever seen. I think he scored a direct free, free kick. He scored this kind of half volley daisy cutter from the edge of the box. Uh, there was another one where he chipped the goalkeeper. It was the most unbelievable four goals and performances ever. And, and, and probably, you know, he was pretty much one of the best players ever in the Premier League at that time. And uh, no wonder uh, that, that, that Barcelona came, came in for him. But you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Mane, and of course that deal has been done now. So Liverpool get thirty-five million pounds uh, for a player with one uh, year left on his contract, and he will go to Bayern Munich. We spoke last week about Darwin Nunez coming in the other way. This is a kind of like for like, I suppose. But um, briefly, Rob, reflections on um, Mane, and and how do you think Liverpool will go without him? Yeah, look, it uh, it's quite um, in- incredible to think that we've already watched that that passing of an era and that um, that strike force of uh, of Liverpool's with uh, Sadio Mane, uh, a constant presence is is now over. It uh, uh, it's been consigned to, to history. So I guess as a Liverpool fan, you just say thanks for the memories, um, thanks for for contributing to the drought. Uh, being broken. Thanks for the Champions League and and, and everything you did. He's an incredible player, and uh, uh, I guess uh, the um, you know the brutal reality that we all know of footballs writ large when we see moments like this that uh, uh, that there's not a massive backlash from the fans because they just know that these sort of things need to happen. That if you're going to stay on top, that there there are times that uh, that you need to let go, and that a, a, a manager of the caliber of Jurgen Klopp needs to to, to select certain players uh, uh, to to stay. He's got to find that next uh, generation to, to bring through and um, and say farewell to, to giants of the game. So plenty of football left in Sadio Mane and, um, and we'll see it uh, at Bayern and we'll obviously also see it um, when he struts his stuff for, for Senegal in the World Cup later on in the year. Willem, do you have anything on Gareth Bale? I do have a bit on Gareth Bale. It's looking like this move to Cardiff could be on. His agents have said they are talking to Mehmet Dalman, the, the Cardiff City chairman, and it would be a romantic one, Derek. I mean, for a guy who's commanded the eye-popping figures that he has and then not actually played uh, to have lifted all of those trophies, uh, to then go and play at Cardiff, obviously with everything geared towards the World Cup at the end of the year, uh, the Cardiff City share a ground 
or they share a training facility rather with Football Association of Wales. Uh, so he'd be with the physios and the support staff every day. Do you, do you think this is uh, from what you're hearing in, in your circles? Do you think uh, that this will be this will be coming off? There's also a school of thought that if he went to a Premier League side or or went anywhere really, uh, he'd be one of many players sort of working towards a cause. If he goes to Cardiff, he can be quite selfish in terms of when he wants to play, when he wants to travel, when he wants to rest up, and he can really time himself for. Uh, for Qatar. Gareth Bale's approach to football, I think, is very interesting and unique. I, you get the sense that this guy likes playing football, but he's probably amongst that group of players that, you know, I, I feel like he, it's not his whole life. And I think he's got the luxury of being able to make decisions that are not based around, I just need to be at the biggest club possible. I mean, he's obviously picked up every piece of silverware pretty much in Spain, that you can pick up a serial Champions League winner and legendary goal scorer. He doesn't need to go anywhere to prove anything to anyone. He's really interested in his Wales career, uh, his golf, uh, Celtic, yeah. Yeah, Celtic Manor. I've been to to watch a Ryder Cup and fabulous court there near Cardiff. So I'm sure he'll be, you know, checking that one out soon. But I think you've got it right in terms of. I think this suits him. He he'll play when he wants to play. He won't play when he doesn't want to play. You know, clearly his wages won't be the same. He was on half a million pounds at Real Madrid. I doubt Cardiff can afford more than fifty thousand pounds a week, to be honest. For based on you know the sort of structures of those kinds of clubs, so he's not there for the money. Uh, I think he's quite romantic, and 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 uh, good luck to him. And he, he again, it's really just about him getting six months of stuff in his legs for for Qatar, really. So, you know, I think that that deal that deal could happen. Uh, looking around, will I also get your your insight on what you think about this proposed uh, move of Raheem Sterling from Manchester City to, uh, to Chelsea? He is in the last 12 months of his contract as well, similar to, to Mane. He's always feel, felt a bit fringe or peripheral to this Man City team. And uh, while he still puts in the performances for, for both club and country, he has always felt like a little bit on the on the outside as... Is this a shrewd move for, for Chelsea? I think it's a, a shrewd move for Chelsea, and I think it's a shrewd move for Manchester City. I mean, you look at the amount of uh, of reinforcements and capable players that they, they are able to find. I mean, Sterling's been a magnificent player for them, but they'll have no problem in replacing him. And as we've seen with, with Sadio Mane, sometimes when there's a year to go on the deal, uh, often when there's a year to go on the deal, it's time to cash in and get some value out of it. Another player who's gone at least for a year is Romelu Lukaku, the £100 million man, now going back to Inter Milan, uh, on an eight for eight million on a on a season long loan, and I'm sure the Inter fans will be delighted to see him back. He was a legend at that club, um, had his head turned by City, and it hasn't worked out for Lukaku despite that kind of early patch at the start where he tore up Arsenal's defence. I think on the second day of the season, and we were all prophesizing uh, what what that could be. Uh, you know, it hasn't worked out for him. Uh, I would just quickly mention Arsenal as well. Um, we have bought Vieira. Uh, every Arsenal's fan dream has come true and, and they can dust off the song. Quite a lot of Arsenal fans discussing whether we should be dusting off the song, though, whether we need to come up with a new one because you retire shirts sometimes, but you, uh, I don't know if you retire songs, but the classic Vieira to the classic Valare uh, song of Frank Sinatra and Gypsy Kings and others, uh, uh, the Arsenal fans will probably be dusting that off, potentially along with Rafinha. That could be a really uh, interesting uh, signing for uh, 
for for uh, for Arsenal as well. He's he's a he's a top player, and probably my last one to bring home, kind of related to transfers, is the the Man United chief executive who had a pint with the fans. They were gonna uh, Richard Arnold went there to the pub to meet them because they were gonna protest side of his house, and he didn't realise he was being recorded. Very naive, I think, on his part, and he made a couple of great comments. He said that last season had been quote a nightmare, but he did say that the money is there for. Ten Hag, if you wanted to spend it on the likes of uh, of uh, Frankie de Jong and, and others, but uh, probably a good move overall. I think the fans probably appreciated that he went to the pub and and, and had a pint and, and listened to what they had to say. Well said. And uh, since you mentioned um, Patrick Vieira in your your final or uh, uh, the penultimate remarks uh, that you made, uh, and I know you were disappointed that I wasn't prepared to, to name one great Liverpool Premier League moment uh, when I sort of uh, referenced the cop earlier in our conversation, Derek. Uh, I have dragged one out especially for you, and it does involve Patrick Vieira. And that was, of course, uh, back in 2004. Uh, you might recall Neil Mellor's goal in the dying seconds of injury time. Patrick Vieira had equalised... Uh, yeah, uh, and um, I was at the game, Rob. We know you were because uh, <laughs> you have talked to us about it many times. So <laughs> I'm just going to nominate that as my special moments where he uh, came up with one of those wickedly spinning strikes uh, to uh, to uh, evade the claws of Jens Lehmann and uh, and score. Uh, but um, yes, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, thanks for the reminder on that, Rob. And yeah, Vieira does remind me briefly as well that the Premier League fixture uh, computer did its work and well maybe we'll talk about this another week but I did I did note that in a completely random process Arsenal get the first game of the season away under lights at a really tricky London rival for the second year in the row so looking forward to the nil point after uh, one game of the season. Well, you did say to me that I should uh, back Brentford at uh, fourteen to one uh, in that round one, and I did, and made some money. So I'll look back at in that. Crystal Palace in that game. Back them in. All right, mate. Um, good to have a giggle at the way out. Uh, you uh, uh, have a great weekend coming up, mate. And um, thanks again for your efforts uh, this week. No problem, gents. See you next time. Willem, thank you. Thank you, Rob. And just a word on the way out for Linfield from South Belfast. They've just won their 56th Irish League title and they've headed to Marbella to meet Qatar in a, uh, a friendly and they've knocked them off 1-0. So much to consider for Qatar ahead of their home World Cup. Uh, and well done to uh, Linfield, who are preparing to play the New Saints from Wales in a Champions League qualifier. Yeah, and they do have a giant killing uh, history if you've uh, uh, got some time to do a quick Google search. So, yeah, not uh, a great signs for Qatar heading into their home World Cup. Uh, well and well done. Damien, thank you very much uh, for, again, uh, uh, a wonderful performance on the buttons, making us uh, sound as good as we can. And, Ed, you've already headed off, mate. We'll talk to you next week. And to our listeners who we really appreciate uh, you spreading the word of, of our show, please subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game. Very good, boys. That was good.